All right. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Colonia Cast, episode 10. Uh, we're super excited. Uh, we're still in the early stages of this project, but it's coming along really nicely. And we're super overwhelmed by the support we've been getting. And I'm uh, <laughs> going to mention kind of early on here, uh, the Turtle Room has uh, generously sponsored us and given us some startup resources. Um, we're in the process of, of building a Colonia Cast student fund where we're going to collect some donations to uh, ultimately create sort of a, a, a little kind of pile of money to fund some student research, Colonian student research oriented projects. So that's going to be fun. Um, but just a huge shout out to the Turtle Room for helping us out with this project. So today's going to be an awesome, an awesome uh, episode. We've got a really, uh, really cool guest lined up for you today. Um, we have the co-founder of the Turtle Conservancy, Marisa Rodriguez, with us. Uh, he's currently also on the advisory board of the Turtle Conservancy and has been on the board of directors in the past. Uh, and he's a really kind of well-known turtle conservationist. And uh, we're super excited to have you on today, Maurice. So thanks for coming on. Hey, no problem. Uh, I'm happy to be here. Right on. So uh, to get into the discussion and interview here, um, We'd like to open it up with just like why turtles? How do you get into them? I know it's kind of a cliche question, but it tends to get the ball rolling a bit. Yeah, um, I guess my earliest memories are, you know, my father. Um, my father has an upholstery business uh, uh, for over 50 years now. Um, and he was working on a boat in southern New Jersey, and he happened to have to go through the Pine Barrens. And uh, while he was driving to this job, he found an eastern box turtle, and he thought he'd bring it home. Uh, of course, that's not the right thing to do, take turtles out of the wild, especially, uh, you know, in Pine Barrens, sensitive area. But this was, you know, a long, long time ago, 1975. And uh, he didn't know any better, and he brought it home, and, and that really started my addiction. Um, I just, uh, when he brought that thing home, I just was fascinated. I, I couldn't believe how beautiful it was. And, and, uh, and, and then I just started to really um, get, get into it, like really start researching and reading. Back then, 1975, there was no internet. There was no smartphones. So you had to go to the library. Uh, and uh, I remember going to the library in our just looking for books on turtles and, and starting to read those books and, and reading about, you know, all the people, especially Peter Pritchard. Uh, I, I do remember at that time uh, the Encyclopedia of Turtles, and, uh, and I wanted that book so bad. And it, it all started from that one box turtle. That's interesting. That's, it's like a very uh, – they're starting to – there's like a pattern of everybody we – interview has a somewhat similar story of what what sparks it for them like uh so the earliest the earliest memories i can think of were also box turtles that would come into my yard and uh, i just i don't see that much anymore but there used to be several that would at my old house we lived more in the woods and i would find them and just play with them for hours or i would keep them for a little while which i mean wasn't supposed to do but i didn't know better when i was five years old and then i just would let them go back in the yard and uh and eventually somebody gave me a, like our neighbors gave me a pair of red-eared sliders and I kept them for like six or seven years and it just kind of grew from there over time. Yeah, That's I've awesome. got a, I've got a similar route, I guess, but 
I kind of got into it more through the literature side. So like the second aspect there, because I'm Southern California, so we don't really have, I mean, we've got turtles here, but that was, I didn't find a turtle and then get into it. I, I kind of picked up the books and, you know, I realized more than these animals are extremely fascinating, but also just like through P Pritchard's encyclopedia, you realize how much you can kind of cover that goes beyond turtles and, and uh, into biodiversity and traveling and experiencing all these uh, culture and everything through pretty much everything through the lens of colonians. But that's pretty wild. But yeah, yeah. I, I think it's important to connect with these animals in, in, in nature. Um, uh, that, that, that's the, the biggest thing. I think when you connect with animals in nature, it makes you want to preserve nature. And, uh, and, and I think that's a really uh, important point to get out there is uh, people, especially young people your age that have time and, you know, aren't paying mortgages yet and don't have kids to raise. Uh, uh, you got to get out there. You got to get in nature no matter where it is, whether it's your backyard or, or some exotic place. Um, but the more connection you have with nature, the more you're going to want to preserve it and, and, um, uh, uh, and take care of these animals, whether it's turtles or, or salamanders or whatever, you know? Yeah, totally agree. I think that's a good segue into your talking you know, about some of these exotic places and, and these connections. What are, so you've definitely traveled a lot over, over the years. What are some of the most kind of memorable trips that you've had looking for turtles or, or just animals oh, in general? How much time do we have? <laughs> <laughs> exotic uh so we'll we'll start with that so first of all my my family's from brazil okay so i was born in america but both of my parents uh, were born in brazil my sister also so my first recollection of anything exotic was uh you know when we would visit brazil um there was a there was a time in 1979 nine years old and uh, we we uh, we were going to move back to Brazil. My parents decided, you know, we're going to we're going to leave America and go back to, to Brazil. And we lived there for a year. And during that year, I remember, you know, people in Brazil would have, you know, turtles in their backyard a lot. And they a lot of redfoots and a few yellowfoots here and there. Um, but it was common for uh, in Brazil for people to have backyards with with turtles in them. It was like a good luck thing or whatever. And uh, and fruits grow naturally everywhere in Brazil, so it, it wasn't a problem to feed your tortoises; they would just eat whatever uh, fruits were growing in your your yard. But I do remember going out in, in nature and looking for for um, turtles and tortoises in, in Brazil. That was exciting, uh, especially you would see trichemes in in lakes and ponds and stuff like that. Um, you know, trichemes dorbignae most likely. Um, I, I was nine, so I don't know that I ID'd everything properly back then. Um, but, but not a huge variety of species because I didn't get into anything, you know, crazy uh, being nine years old and always having to have parents around or someone. Um, but that was probably my first, uh, you know, experience into the exotic. Uh, but, yeah, I've, I've been a, a lot of places, um, uh, you know, I do remember also when I was 15. So when I was 15, I, I, I begged my parents to let me go to Brazil 
with my best friend at the time. His name was George Shea. And, uh, and he, um, he was also 15. And, and, and so we're begging our parents to let us go alone to Brazil. This is, you know, 1985. And our parents, I don't know how we did it, but we convinced them to just let us go. Okay. And, and, and I have family there. So remember that. So it's not like we were going to go there and be alone there. Although we, we kind of were. <laughs> so we, we, we save all this money from working in the summer jobs and, and, and we buy our ticket. It, it was, the ticket was expensive. That was the most expensive part. And I remember getting all this gear. Like we, we bought inflatable rafts, you know, we had all this like nets, like stuff we could have just bought there, but we're like, Oh, we're going to bring all this stuff. Cause we're going to like, we're going to explore the crap out of, out of Brazil. And, uh, and we, we, we do, we, we, we go to Brazil, you know, we, we, we board a flight. Our parents have to sign all this paperwork to let us go along, you know? And, uh, so we get there and we meet family and we immediately, you know, we're like, we got to get out in the wild. And they're like, are you nuts? You know, you're 15. Where, where are you going? You know, but we ended up actually taking, uh, buses in Brazil. It's very cheap to travel the country by bus. So we went from Sao Paulo to uh, to Rio um, by bus, and we did. We stopped anywhere there was like a pond or a forest uh, that we could get to. We would we go out and look for stuff. Um, uh, sadly, we didn't find any turtles in the wild. Not not a single turtle because we were just in too much of a congested, you know, like a city type area. Uh, Sao Paulo is a sprawling city, and that's where my family's from. They weren't going to let us just go into like the Amazon or something. Um, but the cool thing about that trip is we went to uh, this fair and it's called Fata. It's, uh, it's this huge fair that's on Sundays in Rio back. This is again, 1985. It was an illegal fair. Like all the illegal wildlife trade in Brazil went through this fair. It's like the, it, it, think about it. Like, you know, many years ago, like the biggest reptile show was the Daytona show, right? Well, this was like that show, but illegal, you know? So it's, it was this long street in the middle of Rio where you could only access it two ways, like one end or the other end. And the beginning of it's like all fruits and vegetables. So you think, oh, you're just in a regular fair, like a street fair buying fruits. But when you got to the middle, it was insane. People had monkeys there were like hyacinth macaws. There were all kinds of exotic birds and crocodilians. And then people, of course, had turtles. And we were going nuts. Like there were, you know, redfoot tortoises and, and uh, a lot of trichemies of all different kinds that I couldn't ID. There were a Phrynops, uh, Hillari. I remember seeing. Um, so that, that fair was really uh, interesting to see, especially back then. Uh, of course, it no longer exists. I mean, that was like taken down many years ago, but it was, a, it was a huge impact to see that, to see that animal trade. They even had like leopards at this, uh, at this fair. Um, yeah, so it was pretty wild. Um, but uh, if you want to get into like trips that I went specifically for turtles, like exotic trips, is that something you want to like talk about more or? Or, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, for sure. Definitely. Okay. Uh, so uh, let's see. Some of the more memorables. Okay, you mentioned you're going to the Galapagos. Uh, oh, yeah. The Galapagos, of course, anyone 
out there listening that are into turtles, whether it's aquatic or terrestrial. Um, first of all, it, it, I like going places that are safe. I feel like, you know, someone's going to, you know, murder me for my sneakers or something. Tropicus is a place you can go with all age groups, you know, from little kids to your grandmother. In fact, the trip I went to, uh, I went on with Eric with the TC team. We had some of his nephews there. They were in their early 20s. Uh, and his mother came. She was like in her late 70s, maybe even their 80s. Um, uh, so, and it was it was just perfect for everybody. Now, you're not going to see any aquatic turtles in the Galapagos. But if you, if you book the right trip with the right guides, you'll definitely see uh, tortoises. I mean, obviously, it's known for that. But people go there a lot for birds. So if you don't go on a specific tortoise trip, you might see a few tortoises and then a ton of birds. But but you got to book the trip where where people are focused on Chelonians. You're also going to see a ton of sea life and, and sea turtles. We saw so many sea turtles. It was kind of insane. They were just they would just swim right up to you. Uh, hawks, bills and, and, and uh, green sea turtles. They were everywhere. Uh, but that, that's a place that you definitely got to get to. Um, and before you go, try, if you can, if you can afford it, uh, get certified for scuba, um, because the scuba there is out of this world. Um, you, you're gonna, you're gonna see stuff you'll never see anywhere else, but you'll also see stuff that is just, they're not, I guess, I don't know how they're still not used to, uh, human contact, you know, they, uh, but the animals there just have no fear of humans, so they come right up to you. The, you'll, you. It's very odd, especially the birds. Like you here, you know, you walk up to a bird, a pigeon, whatever, it flies away. Over there, you're like walk towards the bird, and they're like, oh, they look at you and they walk towards you, and you're like, wait, why aren't you flying away? You know, so That's awesome. so these animals, yeah, they're very curious. They're like, okay, why why are you here? And 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 so it was very interesting to see that kind of dynamic where they just were not. No fear. And in the water, the sea lions, you know, you hear these things about sea lions being, they'll come right up to your mask, like literally like right here to your mask uh, within inches, look at you and then swim away. Um, we saw manta rays. Uh, I swam with giant manta rays. Uh, I swam with penguins. Uh, there was one point where I was filming someone on our trip. Uh, her name is Mie. It was Eric's girlfriend at the time. And they say the sharks in the Galapagos, at least the guides do, they say they're, they're all vegetarian, uh, which is a joke because no one ever gets bit by sharks in the Galapagos on these tours, apparently. I don't know. Uh, but but they, they kept saying, oh, the sharks here are vegetarian. Don't worry. Just go in the water. And you go in the water, there's sharks everywhere. And this one time I'm filming and Mie's got her snorkel. She's just swimming and a school of hammerhead shark come by and she's so close to them that her her fins are hitting the sharks that's how close she was she was literally touching the sharks swam she had no clue she was that close but she was just literally you know so it's pretty wild uh, i i would definitely recommend uh galapagos because you're gonna see just a variety uh, you know between birds and 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 sharks and manta rays and and uh, a ton of uh, a ton of wildlife and and the people are amazing there. The place is safe, 
and the food is fantastic. You're going to eat basically fresh fish every day. Uh, and, and yeah, you're going to love it. Uh, I definitely, I'm jealous that you're going Jack soon. Uh, and who else is going to someone else has booked it with you. Was it you, Mike? I I'm, well, so I, I wanted to, but I think it's probably going to conflict with the start of college, so I might not be able to uh, at this point. But who needs college? Yeah, <laughs> yeah I don't know. I got to get these four years done. I might. What I might end up doing if they do that trip again is taking a gap semester, like somewhere down the line, gotcha. and then just do that. So I could also potentially get like leave from school to go do it for a few weeks. So. Hopefully we'll work something out in the process there. Yeah. Well, you've never even left the country. No, I've never even left the country. The farthest I've been is California and Florida. So this is going to be oh, a yeah. like a hell of a first place to go <laughs> outside of the United States. <laughs> it's like Jeez. going from level one to level one hundred in one jump. Yeah. You're gonna love it. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's gonna be amazing. Uh, make sure you bring all the camera gear you can. Yeah, gear. I, I have some leftover. I have a good chunk of money left over in my budget. And I'm probably going to get some. I'm going to probably get upgrade to the newest GoPro and uh, for underwater footage and probably get like a Canon or a Nikon or a good camera I can use to take pictures there. Not just if my you phone. If you have the budget, those, uh, 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 those little drones by... DJI, right? I have a little $500 one. It's probably the best purchase I've ever made. I, I've taken that on several trips now. It fits in your pocket, literally. And the video and uh, uh, quality is amazing. And to learn how to use it, I learned how to use it in maybe an hour. And I can fly it really well now. Um, so What's I recommend a drone. Uh, DJI, uh, I think it's the Mavic, maybe. I forget which one. It's the smallest one. It's not the smallest, actually. It's like it, it runs about $500. The one that costs about 500 bucks has a great camera, and the footage is out of this world. Like, you're going to ca capture stuff and angles you'll never be able to, obviously, you know, with a handheld uh, device. So you can get, especially on an island, that's going to be cool to fly up a drone up above you and then zoom back into you. And, they let you yeah. fly them there, like uh, in certain that's areas. That's a good question. That's a good question. I would check online uh, for sure about that uh, if if it's allowed there. But I I, I think so. You it's you know it's it's Ecuador. I can't imagine that there there might be some restricted areas, but I'm sure there are places they're going to let you fly drones. I mean. Like if you're on a boat traveling from place to place, you know, taking some drone footage from a boat would be great. So, oh yeah, yeah. that that would be perfect. Yeah, because imagine you see a pod of uh, whale sharks, and you know, flying up above them and getting some footage. That would be insane. I wish I it's, had. It's, That's the one thing I wish I had on my trip. The closer I get to it, the more I st it starts to actually set in that it's actually going to happen. Because I've had the money to do it for years, and I just. I never it took me a long time to find the right trip plus covid kind of threw a wrench through the whole thing and set me back like two years so now that's actually set in stone i'm like i'm gonna see all of this stuff like there's so much like i i can't even begin to like understand how awesome it's gonna be like that's that's just what it's that's been cool. on my mind all the time now that's awesome there's something about the first trip out of the 
out of the country that's interesting and the fact that like we've read all about these places but actually being there is a totally different experience you really realize how much bigger the world is than kind yeah. of what you, you've come to see in the in the united states i guess yeah and and the cultures it's a, it's a huge shock like my first time in yeah. madagascar was was like that like insane yeah. uh i've never been to a place where it, it felt sort of prehistoric in parts. You know, there are parts, obviously, you fly into Antanarivo, and that's the, the main city. It was colonized by the French. So it, it, it's, you know, it's what you expect from a third world country kind of thing. But we went to a part of Bally Bay where I would say is I felt like I went back in time thousands of years where the people were barefoot, barely clothed, uh, and they lived in little, um, little wooden huts that they made with pieces of wood and thatched roofs. I mean, it was like you were in the Stone Age. Like these people were basically hunter gatherers. You know, there was no farming. It was so hot there. There was no. You didn't really see much farming. They maybe farmed very little, but they were really just living off the land. You know, catching birds. Uh, catching, you know, they're right on the ocean, so a lot, a lot of fish in their diet, uh, some fruit from the forest, um, and they were eating, um, you know, rodents from the the the, the forest, wh whatever they can catch. Uh, but that that was really a shocker to see that people out there are still living like the Stone Age and 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 doing well. I mean, these people were healthy. You know, Americans with our diets and all the carbs and sugar we eat. These people, they were all ripped. They had ab, like yeah. six pack abs, and you're like, "What? Do you guys work out?" You know, it's like, no, because every day, you know, they got to walk miles and miles to to catch their food, um, you know, and they're eating a very healthy, natural diet, uh, and they were happy. I mean, so it's interesting to see that that contrast. That's a good point. When I was when I went with the TSA for the big confiscation, uh, it, the same exact thing is like. I mean, at the time, I was an eighth grader, so it was a huge kind of change of pace. But yeah, I just remember distinctly after the airport, we got in in that car, and for ten minutes getting to the hotel, that was a the wildest drive I've ever been on. I mean, the, the streets there, and and just the, there's not really any lanes. I I seem to recall you kind of just drive wherever, and there's people right. on on Zebu, and it's just it's 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 crazy. I mean, you think L.A. is crazy? This is a different level. But uh, yeah, well, this is great. So, so also Madagascar, the, the, when it, it was so dry when I was there, like you're, you're mentioning the roads, that we were on some dirt roads that had obviously, you know, potholes everywhere. And, uh, and, and it started to rain one time. And, and this is a, like the southern Madagascar. It was so dry. It started to rain and people started to go into the street and bathe in those puddles. They were literally just like, okay, it's there's water available. Let me take a bath. And you're like, what is going on? You know, like, it's kind of crazy. I feel like living in such a natural state like that, there's probably not as many, like, stress or mental, like, issues and stuff with a lot of people because your mind and body benefits so much from all the, like, that ridiculous amount of exercise and foraging and stuff because that's what we evolved to do, so... We're literally designed for that. Exactly. Like the, yeah. the modern world kind of removes a lot of that, and then there's nothing really to replace it for humans. It's like, well, you can go buy all the food you ever need, and you just 
kind of sit around like there's i don't know no i agree and when you don't know all the stuff all these distractions you don't know any better you're just happy with what you have you know you're happy just you know catching a fish for dinner and and hanging out under the uh, under the stars and and the stars if you remember michael like it, the the it, looking up in the stars at night there's no pollution where you are in, in madagascar it's like looking at like uh, it's unbelievable it's like the stars light up the sky like you've never seen in your life you can't see that in america not where uh, where i live at least i've never seen that but it's 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 remarkable how beautiful the sky is like at night I've gotten a small taste of that in a couple roads in real remote parts of Florida, but it's still not the same as like, you can still yeah. see the light pollution on the edges of the horizon, but gotcha. and, and around here, it's like, just, you're not going to get a great view. It's all just yeah. hazy. But. So we're diverging from turtles. Uh, so let's yeah, get back at the turtles. So Madagascar. One of the cool things about Madagascar, talking about uh, uh, rain and, and puddles of water. So we were we were on a quest at one point to find Planicotta, okay, Pixies Planicotta. So to see them, you got to go is sort of. We were in like central western um, uh, Madagascar, and it's called the Karindi Forest. So that was like absolutely one of the most amazing uh, trips ever. Um, and it was part of this trip where we went there and also went up to uh, see Unifera, which I, I get into a little later. So on the trip to Karindi, you you go through, uh, obviously, these roads. That it's like this red clay, uh, if you can imagine. The roads are all this red clay, full of potholes. So you're not, you're not driving more than 5 miles an hour, 10 miles an hour, or you, you're going to, like, break your axle. And, uh, and a lot of these, and since the Karindi is just a lot wetter, the potholes would fill up with water. And I remember we, we had so many people in a, in, a, in a car. We had, you know, Anders Rodin, uh, uh, Russ Minnemeyer, uh, Peter Paul Van Dyke, and Eric, myself. Uh, and we were going down these roads. And I'm, you know, I'm a young, I was young, younger, I'm a little bit younger than them. So I'm like in the back, kind of standing up and looking down at these puddles and I kept seeing what I thought were little turtle heads coming out of the puddles. And I thought maybe it's just my imagination. It's crazy that there'd be turtles in these ponds. Right. And then I finally gave up and I said, guys, stop the car. And they're like, what do you mean? Stop the car. We got to get to the Karindi. It's like, no, stop the car. I'm telling you, there are turtles in these little puddles. We keep driving through these puddles. There's little baby. They're little turtles in there. They're like, yes. They're like, all right, you're going a little crazy. They no think problem. you're going but crazy. <laughs> they think I'm going crazy because we're traveling at some speed. And I'm see. And I'm talking when we when we do stop eventually. These are hatchling turtles. These are not adults. So yeah, we stop the car and we start sifting through and we start picking up little um, Pelabedusa. And they're tiny, tiny turtles. They must have, you know, the parents must have laid eggs near the road because it, it was exposed. And instead of going towards the swamp, they went towards the water and in, in, in the in the puddles. And we go in there and we sift through. We we catch several. All of us start, and then we start all going crazy, like to every puddle, we're like looking for baby turtles. Uh, but yeah, we found a bunch of turtles just just right in right in the road. Didn't even have to leave the road. <laughs> so that was cool um and then we get to the karindi forest uh there's a there's a 
there's a, a famous cemetery that uh, John Baylor had gone to. He always talked about the cemetery where the Planicotta would just be walking around the gravestones, you know. And we, of course, had to go to the cemetery. And they did this whole, uh, the, the natives in the area, they, they, they made us buy some rum. And they did this whole, like, they blessed us. And it was really odd, like this little ceremony they did where they were blessing us to be able to walk safely through the cemetery, uh, you know. So we, we we obliged, of course. We didn't want to disrespect anyone. We sat there, went through the whole thing. And and I think it was just so we could buy them rum, really, and they could drink the rum. But uh, but the in the end, they used the rum a little to bless us, you know, kind of sprinkle a little. And I think they drank most of it. <laughs> uh, but we get to the cemetery, and we didn't see Planicotta, but the amount of snakes we saw was insane and different species we we were just finding snake after snake after snake and the cool thing was like uh we were there with gerald kuchling also and and gerald kept saying to us oh don't you know just grab whatever snake you want you can just grab them there are no poisonous snakes in in madagascar and i was like oh okay fantastic so we, any snake we saw we just like grab it no matter what turn around if it bit you you didn't care it was it was it wasn't poisonous at one point, I catch a snake, and then Gerald looks at me and goes, yeah, but there is one poisonous snake in Madagascar, and Maurice, you have it in your hand right now. So I was like, I kind of freaked out, uh, but but it was, it was, you know, it didn't bite me, thankfully, and, and it was a rear-fanged poisonous snake. I can't remember the genus now. I wish I, I remember that. But but that was a little uh, scary situation where you have a poisonous snake in your hand, and you don't know it. You're just like okay. Uh, but that that's definitely recommended if you if you ever go to Madagascar, uh, try to get to the Karindi forest. Um, so after the cemetery, we went into the deep forest where these Germans were studying different wildlife, and uh, and they had a camp there. And as soon as we get there, we see a fusa. If you know what that is, that's sort of like a, a big dog between a dog and a cat. Actually, it's really it, it's it's a mixture of a dog and a cat, uh, and they hunt lemurs. So there's a lemur specialist, and of course we saw lemurs. And in the forest, I mean, it's this giant forest with a, a very little sunlight. When you're in the forest, very little sunlight's hitting the ground. Uh, but there's like dappled sunlight, and and while you're walking through, you, we found Planicotta. They're just walking around, and because there's very little sunlight, the the moisture just stays on the ground certain times of year, and all the Planicotta just had moss on their backs, like this beautiful green moss, and and they're just walking around looking for mushrooms, and that was amazing to be able to find find them, um, and then of course at night. You got to get a, a good headlamp, and that's a recommendation. Anyone going anywhere, okay, all you guys listening here, make sure you have a really good headlamp wherever you go. Right, that I mean, that's important. Yeah, because at night, a lot of a lot of these places, you know, you're looking for turtles. You're looking for turtles during the day, but at night, some of these places have amazing wildlife, especially Madagascar. With a with a headlamp, you could shine and see, you know, lemurs. And obviously, chameleons like from a mile away. Chameleons like with a headlamp, uh, you could just spot them from from really far. Uh, and we found tons of chameleons. 
uh, and and other wildlife just like peering down at you. Uh, definitely make sure you bring one to Galapagos. Yeah, you'll, you'll probably see some stuff at night. Hundred percent. I'm going to do that now. Yeah, yeah. Um, but other parts of Madagascar, uh, interesting. Uh, then we we went up north to Bally Bay, and of course, Bally Bay. Everyone knows uh, the. Uh, if you're into turtles, you know the unifera up there. Um, you fly into Sualala. It's the probably the smallest airport I've ever been to. It's not even an airport. It's like a, a field, like someone's field with grass and dirt. Uh, and the airport, like, you know, where you think you, you your bags come out, it's like this little thatched roof, wooden hut. And you, they bring out your bags there, and it, it's like it's kind of funny. It's like it's like you're in the Flintstones kind of thing, and uh, and and so we get our bags, and then we you go to town, you load up on water and whatever, uh, and to get to Bally Bay, we had to take a boat, and we took a little tiny boat. Like it, 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 the boat, we uh, when we were there, it was sort of in disrepair. We met we met up with Darrell, um, and they have this tiny boat, so. You, you plan on getting wet because <laughs> you're going across like a bay with waves. And if you're in a tiny boat, you know, the water's just pounding you. And uh, so we crossed, we barely crossed because the engine had trouble. It was like kind of a long story, but, but we ended up getting to, to the other side. And that's where I saw those very primitive people uh, like uh, living in Bally Bay, uh, right on the beach there. And then you, you take a long hike into into the forest and it's a, like a bamboo scrub forest and there are other you know types of uh vegetation but it's very low it, it's not like uh, 100 foot trees you're looking at a, a very uh maybe 20 feet max as like the tallest plant or something and uh we went to a release site there uh, and and some of the work that we were doing was trying to get because our goal at TC was to get some planticot at some point. So it was important to us number one to see how they really live in, in nature, so we can try to duplicate that at our place in California, whether it be the plant life that they eat, or just the the soil that they're on, or uh, whatever. Just make conditions for them comfortable so they can breed. Um, so we put data loggers at the release site. We saw animals that were uh, getting ready to be released. They're about the size of a basketball, um, you know, and, uh, and put these data loggers out. And then we went out to a lake um, and there was a woman fishing and we we're just kind of talking. And while she's fishing, she catches uh, a remnicellis, like literally catches a, a, a small, I don't know, maybe eight inch Kelly's and we just like pounced on her and she's just like what is going on this is my lunch <laughs> like leave me alone kind of thing you know so we basically take take her turtle from her and I, I we gave her some money uh because we're like we felt bad obviously we're taking her, her lunch away from her so we gave her some money and she was okay and just let us take the turtle we took the turtle and we we're all you know we took a million photographs of it and uh and then we uh, and then we were, we were spotting them you could see their heads popping up in that lake so there were obviously adults in there um but we were also told there were crocodiles in there and we we shouldn't swim but that didn't stop us um gerald kuchling got in his speedos 
and went into the and, and he's like snorkeling around and we we all went in the water looking for them uh we didn't catch any more but we definitely saw a, a bunch of rim in the in that lake um uh, that was really really fun and then from there uh cross to capsada which is on the other side of bali bay and Kapsada is just this, if you look on a map, Google Earth, you'll see it's just like this little peninsula or a little point that comes out. And uh, and that's where I first saw uh, tortoises in the wild. Um, so we obviously saw them uh, in nature in a, in, a, in a captive site. You know, they were fenced in in the release site. But to, to uh, and they were they were in the area where the just didn't find them. Um, they're very cryptic. But in we actually started to see them in the wild. We saw adults, we saw males, females, and then I just got super lucky that day and I found a hatchling. Uh, uh, and I started, you know, I started to call out and say, hey, there's a hatchling, and people thought I was joking, but they ran over and I actually had a little baby unifera in my hand. Uh, and of course, you know, everyone's got a camera. We, we took another million pictures of the hatchling with the adults and, and and that was really interesting to see the, the the see them in nature, see the harsh conditions that they live. It's it, in the summer. It's it's brutal. I mean, there's very little uh, shade. They have to go into the bamboo thickets to get to the shade. But what you do notice is they're on re very rocky soils, um, volcanic soils in some areas. And, and, and you see a lot of people keep animals in captivity uh, and they keep them on grass and all these things. That's not how they live in the wild. And you see their beaks in, 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 in captivity, their beaks are overgrown or their nails are super long. Well, these animals are constantly, you know, using their nails on this rough soil and trimming their beaks in nature. And they don't have those problems in nature. Uh, so we should learn from, from that and kind of give them maybe a little rougher terrain so they can uh, mow down, you know, like keep their nails trimmed and their beaks trimmed and, and, and they give them more exercise. A lot of turtles in captivity you'll see are, you know, have problems walking or, or, or all kinds of issues because we just don't give them a rough environment. We just make it too, too nice for them. So, yeah. Yeah, that's a good point. But just in general, that's how I've always looked at like captive keeping of turtles is I always try and take, take a lot of inspiration and uh knowledge from how they're living in the wild replicate that as best as i can and it's always pretty successful and tends to the animals always tend to do best exactly so if if and that's sort of the point of why we went there if if we're going to keep something at the center at the turtle conservancy one of the things me and eric always said we were going to go visit where they lived so we can do the best job we could uh you know raising these animals and, and and not you know obviously you can breed snakes in a sweater box in, in your in your closet, but do you really want to do that? Do you isn't it uh, you know do you want to ha give these animals a little better quality of life? And and our motto at the TC and some of you have been there, you'll see the enclosures are are large. Um, we give them a lot of um, you know a, a, a lot of area to move around and and exercise. I, I think that's very important to give these animals the best quality of life you can, especially if you're going to get out of nature. 
The to circle team... back to um, what we were talking about a bit off air, could you um, like go into the origins of the TC and like your role in its uh, creation and sure. like, its early sort of start? Yeah, no problem. So, so a little background on me. So, I, 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 when I was fifteen, I believe I started volunteering at zoos. Right, it, like this, this passion for turtles was just so big. I had to go be part of like the turtle world. So my first, my first uh, volunteer position was at the Turtleback Zoo in New Jersey. And that's because it was just so close to my house. Uh, that's where I met Alan Faust. He kind of was a mentor early on and he had a lot of different turtle species. And he recommended when I, if I ever had the chance, when I get a driver's license, go to the Bronx Zoo. So uh, as soon as I got a driver's license and was able, I was in college at the time, I went to the Bronx Zoo. And I remember just going through the reptile house, through the public area, and then there was a door that had a, a, a just said staff on it. And I said, hey, what the heck, let me knock on this door. And, and, I, and I knock on the door and someone shows up and says, like, who, who the hell are you? Like, wh why are you knocking on my door? I was like, hey, and I was just like, right there, I just said, hey, I'd like to volunteer. Is there any chance of becoming a volunteer here at the Reptile House? And he's like, he looked at me, he's like, yeah, you know what? It was Rich Zerilli. He was he was the, uh, the senior keeper at the time. Real tough guy, tattoos. And, and he, he lets me in. He says, yeah, yeah, come in. Talk to Bill Holmstrom. Bill's the, the super uh, collections manager. And, and Bill uh, said, yeah, just fill out this paperwork. But we're very strict, they said. If you want to be a volunteer, it's not like show up anytime you want. You got to have a strict schedule. You show up when the staff shows up. You leave when the staff leaves. And you work all day. If you, you know, you're not coming here for an hour or two just to look at turtles or whatever. And I said, no problem. No problem with that. So I started to go every Sunday, like people go to church. That was my church. I mean, every Sunday I drive up to the Bronx, show up there, you know, 8.30 in the morning and work till, till they, they left. And that's how I met John. And John was the curator of herpetology at the, at the, uh, at the Bronx Zoo at the time. And man, if he was alive today, he, if you put him on this podcast, you need like four or five hours of time because uh, he has stories. He was a storyteller, I mean, by nature, but he could tell you stories that would just keep you so captivated. You'd be here all day. Um, but getting to know uh, John, you know, I really started to get into turtle conservation. I, that's kind of the pivotal point, I think, in my life and my career where I went from not from just being. Um, hobbyist that kept turtles and was like interested in keeping turtles at home to to actually learning about conservation like how do i apply what i learn you know keeping turtles to maybe doing something where i can help save them in the wild um so me and john became actually pretty good friends i, I went on trips with him in nature looking for you know wood turtles and spotted turtles and bog turtles and in, in his sites and then um uh, the Bronx Zoo, for, for about 30 years, they had a lease to keep animals on St. Catharines Island. It's an island off the coast of southern Georgia. It's owned by the Wrigley family, I believe, the you know Wrigley Gum. Uh, so they own this giant island, uh, thousands of acres. I think it's the size of Manhattan or something like that. And, uh, and they had a lease with the WCS to keep, all, uh, keep their tortoises there. So they had 
they had uh, a few unifera they had burmese mountain tortoises uh pixies a bunch of pixies so uh, they they uh they had a 30-year lease that was about to expire and wcs for some reason wasn't able to convince the family to renew the lease they were actually thinking that no problem you know we're just going to renew it for another 30 years uh, but some reason some, they had a falling out of some sort or maybe the owners just didn't want to have them there and I, I don't know what the exact reason was but the lease the 30-year lease was up so john comes to me he goes maurice you i know you work for eric Eric's a very wealthy guy. Uh, if 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 other people listening don't, don't understand, uh, Eric um, at the time was uh, building hotels in New York, uh, but he had a long history in New York of nightclubs. From nightclubs, he went into restaurants, and from restaurants, he went to to hotel. Uh, so he, you know, made very good money, obviously from these uh, from these uh, businesses. So he had some land in California, in Ojai, uh, which some of you have been to, and uh, and always wanted to do something with turtles and tortoises. So I was working for Eric. We talked about doing a little turtle center out in Ojai because the weather's perfect for tortoises. So when John approached me, he goes, Maurice, I, we don't want to break up these animals. They've been together, some of them for 30 years. They're the breeding groups now, and there's the it's such a large collection that it'd be hard to be able to send them to one zoo, one institution. We'd like to move them all together someplace. You think you and Eric uh, would help us? And I said, well, look, I can only ask Eric uh, and 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 see what he says. So uh, I I talked to Eric. Eric was you know immediately is like, of course, no problem, let's do it. Uh, so we arranged a dinner at one of Eric's restaurants. It's called Matsuri. It's a, a Japanese restaurant. Uh, me, Eric, John Baylor, and Bill Holmstrom uh, sat at this dinner, and we hashed out a plan to, to, to build the Turtle Conserves. That's literally how it started, right there at that dinner at this Japanese restaurant that Eric owned. And uh, so the three board members or three founders, me, Eric, and, and John, and that was in 2004 when we met, and uh, and we started building. Me and Eric would fly out every man. It seemed like every month we'd fly from New York to to California, and we started building. We started just building enclosures. We had no animals there, and and at some point when we had enough enclosures built, we we uh, we flew to um, to St. Catharines, uh, rented a U-Haul, loaded up all the animals. And then I drove, Eric could Eric very busy with his businesses, but I drove them with the, the keeper that was, was keeping them in, in St. Catherine. She was the lead keeper. She agreed to work for us in Ojai. So she quit her job, uh, you know, with WCS. She came on board with the TC and, uh, this guy, Lucas, who still works for T, uh, TC yeah. out of Ojai. We, we basically drove across country with, uh, you know, 200 animals in a u-haul it was it was amazing and and if you go online i think some of these videos if you go to the tc turtle conservancy youtube some of these videos are on there i think the video of our adventure across country might be on there um so we get the ohio we unload and, and we start putting them in all their enclosures and and they did quite well i mean a lot of the animals uh, uh we still have out there 
like the Burmese mountains, the radiated tortoises are still out there. Um, uh, you know, the pixies, unfortunately, didn't do too well in, in, in Ojai, but we still have a few. Uh, but yeah, that, that was, a, that was, that's how we started. That's how the TC started right there. That's awesome. That's a that's a incredible story. You know, I've heard like bits and pieces of it, but I don't think I've heard it that continuous kind of the the genesis. Yeah, that's of it. the first time I've heard it told like by someone who was a part of it. And like actually, I've only just heard little anecdotes here and there. I've never actually gotten the full picture. I'm yeah. curious. So one thing we talk about a lot on here is is uh, in C two kind of adventures and and research, and just. I, I think we're all on on the side of like we see the value in XC2 work, so cap with captive animals. But like, what would you say? Why? How would you kind of justify that to someone who doesn't necessarily understand the purpose of having uh, kind of collections in captivity? Ooh. Well, look, uh, I think part of the reason I want to preserve nature and preserve these turtles in nature is because i keep them myself right like as a child growing up i've had turtles and sure there are probably a lot of turtles i should have had and not all turtles make it right you, you lose some uh it's it's sad but by keeping them in captivity it it it, it motivated me to want to be involved in, in preserving them in nature and and the truth is some some turtles and some countries are just not safe enough uh, uh, right now at this moment in time um, to, to uh, you know, and if you don't, so basically if you don't preserve them in captivity, there's, there's probably no hope for some of these species, right, in, in their countries. And one of them is Unifra. Uh, Unifra, the, the country is poor. The government seems to be corrupt. I mean, when I was there in 2007, the 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 new president, he just became president. He was a former DJ at a nightclub. Okay, this is no joke. The guy went from DJ at a nightclub right to president of a country. Okay, so you know, just think about that. How crazy that is. Okay, so can a guy that was a DJ really run a country properly? Probably not. Um, so. So it, it was in disarray, and I know since I've been there, the, the populations of Unifera have been under tremendous amount of pressure. The government, uh, last time I was there, the government had made a deal with the Chinese mining, and mm -hmm. it just so happens they wanted to open up an open pit mine right near where Unifera was, which means they're going to have all the equipment, all these people, these and, and, and foreigners coming to that area with Unifra, they're just going to put them in their suitcases and bring them back home. So in that case, if you don't have captive situation for Unifra, they're going to go extinct, period. There's just, just no doubt about it. I mean, I, I, I absolutely believe like a species like Unifra needs captive assistance. Uh, another one is a Quora macordi, an animal which I keep and have a few um they're they're gone in nature they're so valuable in china and in their right mind it where they exist in china find one on the ground they would be insane just leave it there because uh, the money they can make they 
support their family for months or I don't know, maybe longer if they find one and sell one, right? So why wouldn't you do that, right? If you're poor, you know, you you got to feed your kids, you know, your kids come before turtles, right? So, so it doesn't make sense. Uh, so Cora needs captive breeding and maybe someday where we can make create a preserve in, in China and need these captive colonies or they're just going to... I'm dealing with a teacher of Van Dyke, which some of you have seen at my house. Uh, there were only yep. five of the United yeah. States and there are only three that we know of uh, in captivity anywhere in the world. Like the whole planet, there are five in captivity. So if something happens in Myanmar, which uh, they, they come from Myanmar, and we all know the political situation in Myanmar is pretty bad right now. The military is back control. You don't know. They might start mining the beaches, which they are. They mine the beaches for sand for construction, which impacts the nesting beaches. Uh, eggs are, uh, The turtles they have no, no place to nest. Uh, they also find the adults. They eat them. Uh, Soft-shelled turtles are a delicacy in India. Uh, they eat them here in the United States too, uh, as you know. Uh, so, if if something really turns for the worse in Myanmar, you need a captive population somewhere so you can possibly produce hatchlings to release one day when it's safe. Uh, so I'm I'm a big believer in in balance, and obviously a lot of species you don't need captive uh, rear, uh, you know, captive colonies of, uh, but. Um, it's good to learn, learn how to breed them in just in case you need to one day. Yeah, I think the idea of building an invisible ark makes sense. And I think we all kind of see that and a lot of people that like they that's one of the questions I get when I, I help with the tours at the TC a few times in the past. And a lot of people, that's one of their first questions. Why does this matter? Kind of. And I think that in that hour and a half that they go through there. Uh, everyone comes away really understanding kind of what the what the purpose of of uh, I guess assurance colonies is. So, yeah. but well, yeah. you see the, like the the full scope of the trade and how how much money is involved. Like, yeah. it makes like preserving some of these animals in situ is like, in order to do that like successfully, you'd have to pretty much vanquish the government in China, and like <laughs> or find some way to 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 overpower like the forces of money and like politics which is just like almost and it's impossible just, and it's such as it's also a cultural thing right uh the chinese it's a you know obviously chinese uh culture they've been around for thousands of years way older culture than the u.s and part of their culture is to eat turtles or use turtles for medicinal purposes it's not something you do here in america but it's a cultural thing in china so it's hard to to change those cultural perceptions uh it's just a difficult thing to do but i think it's something that's important that people kind of try to educate uh you know uh, uh yeah educate so they they veer off you know using you know turtles for to cure cancer and maybe use some other type of uh you know drugs or something that that that's not going to have such a bad impact but uh culture has a lot to do with how people um preserve animals and a good example going back to madagascar there's a, a there's a, a taboo it's called a fadi the native people in in madagascar 
they have a taboo for eating tortoises. So for many, many years, the radiated tortoises, pixie store, they were okay. No one was touching them. No one was eating them. It was only until foreigners started coming in uh, and from other areas that they were, they didn't have this body. They didn't have a taboo. They're like, this is part of my culture. They started to decimate and eat uh, the, the radiated tortoises. So populations are declining rapidly, not because of the natives. It's because of others. So that's really important. Culture has a lot to do with how people preserve their animals. And Maurice, you've, if I'm not mistaken, you've also worked with uh, the plowshare tortoises in Madagascar. Is that right? Correct. Yeah. Yeah. We're, we're curious, like, what you think about, you know, how to, where, like, the projections of, like, how many are left or, you know, any other situations that we could help. Yeah. So in, in my mind, I think the, the best thing for the plowshare in nature the the area is not so large right the especially copsada right. it's it's not a huge area if they could create a national park uh like that is actually secured uh where they could um you know even almost fence it in it's not it's not an impossible thing to do uh is create a fence that peninsula in and really put the right type of protection and more importantly, have some kind of um, like doctoral students, some kind of outside uh, governance, uh, because the problem is the natives that we we actually helped fund through Durrell. Durrell's been working there for many years on Plowshare. We helped fund protection, which means we hired local people to protect the tortoises. But it turned out it, that these locals they were picking up hatchlings, trying to protect them and selling the hatchlings, right? Because they, they're so poor, you gotta understand how poor they are. One hatchling, you know, supports them for a year. Uh, so I think you need some kind of outside uh, governance in, in that case where you had, for instance, maybe you guys are going to school soon, a doctoral student studying, uh, you know, studying tortoises or studying the plant life, whatever, anything in that area, the lemurs, uh, if you had like a presence of people and and somehow supported the local community, if you ha if you have people outsiders there, they're going to need support from locals. You pay them a salary to help you, whatever. You're going to need people to cook for you. You're going to need people to help, you know, uh, whatever. Um, so I think if you could kind of create like an ecotourism there and have some kind of outside governance a little bit to to watch what they're doing. And, and, and show them that they can also make a long-term sustainable income uh, by not removing the tortoises, by not taking them out of there. It was a, a long-term vision. Um, you can maybe protect them a little better. But right now, they're just, there's no other income. What, what, are they, you know, what are they doing out there? A tortoise, if, it, if you're poor and a tortoise could support you and your family for a year, you're going to do it. You, you gotta we gotta make alternatives for them um so they don't do it i think that's the most important thing in that region on these wildlife dealers come in and and kind of hop around between little areas and and they'll offer the the local people there i mean thousands of, of u.s dollars which translates to a lot in uh i forget right. the currency in it but it's just yeah if you can beat out that price which would still be hard regardless but ecotourism sounds like it would be i guess the only downside potentially is that you bring attention to them but at the same rate like 
you look at models in other countries and typically it works pretty well in terms of it's all positive attention. The, the, the guys who want to decimate the ecosystem kind of already know about that. So, right. Not, yeah. and, and, and Galapagos is a good example of a positive, right? Galapagos tourism brings in millions and millions of dollars that there, uh, therefore help preserve the, the, tur the tortoises. Um, if it wasn't for all the tourism in the Galapagos, they would probably be in a similar situation where poaching would just be more valuable. You got to make something else more valuable than poaching, uh, and make people understand that there, there's a long-term uh, uh, gain here instead of a short-term. Okay, grab a tortoise, sell the tortoise. Tortoise is gone, no more money. But if you have tourism, you have money coming in steadily. You have people just, you know. So Galapagos is a good model for that. Yeah, and I think too in terms of like. I guess putting an economic value to nature typically is nice yeah. when it comes to legislation too. I mean, in Madagascar, the government, like you said, I think it has maybe the record for the the shortest presidency was like six days before they were uh. there was a coup and something like that. But that that's tougher. But yeah, in a lot of these places, if you can like justify that, then legislative purposes become a lot easier for the animals at least. Exactly. Look, it's different. It's it's difficult. And, and you don't have the same solution for every species. That's something that'll never happen. Every species of turtle requires a different, you know, solution, a different, a different method. Some turtles, you just protect the habitat, buy a piece of land and, uh, you know, like we're doing with balsam tortoise, buy the land, fence it in, and they should be okay. Um, cause there's not a lot of tourism, not a lot of people where the balsam tortoise is from. Um, but other, other places, other, you need different solutions, you know? So, uh, you really gotta, you know, get with the right people and, and come up with something that, uh, that works, but it's very difficult. Uh, I have to say working with conservation, you always have to add in that human factor. Ideally you would think, oh, let's just preserve the land and, 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 and that's it. But if you don't factor in people and the locals, you're, you're going to fail. You have to factor in what you're doing to the local communities, who has access to those areas. It, it's, it's very important that you, you factor all that in or, or you're not going to make it. Right. It's a, and we can see how this could be a, you know, perhaps a potentially contentious or controversial topic that um, Michael and I, we were also talking about this when we met up at, um, in Atlanta, we're talking about how, you know, how South Africa has been so, um, successful conservationally with regards to like rhinos and ironically that's due to trophy hunters largely you know how they bring in revenue yeah well look in america it's sort of the same thing right most right, of yeah. our wildlife in america is preserved from hunting and fishing licenses and the taxes on that equipment right so you know, a lot of people might have this bad, uh, you know, perception of hunters, like, oh, hunters are bad people. But the hunters and fishermen in America, we preserve the, the land. I mean, it, it's it, it's the the disp like the amount of money that comes in from just people donating to preserve is disproportionate by so much uh, to, to what comes in from the taxes and fishing licenses and hunting licenses. So uh, you have to, like I said, you always have to uh, factor in people or conservation doesn't work. 
Yeah, I think we typically have when we're using a resource and it's benefiting us in some way beyond beside economically. I mean, when it comes to these reptile dealers taking things out of the wild, they don't care if it's still there. But when it comes to using it as a food source or something that that gives back, typically, I mean, I've seen this in, in Madagascar and other places that people have a respect for the resource in terms of how they're harvesting it, that kind of thing. But uh the the thing that we're really dealing with is uh, unsustainable harvest, which I think is mostly in the form of, um, you know, poaching. And I, I think that there's certain situations where you can kind of kind of get out of that natural equilibrium, but a lot of kind of native populations have have learned to kind of cope with the resource and use it sustainably. And uh, I think a lot of times that works, but trying to get but when you add the poaching pressure onto a lot of these things the population just crashes and you can't really deal with it much so agreed yeah but yeah so i mean we're coming up on time here um i guess we yeah so we uh have got some we do a little game at the end uh okay. a little a little trivia volley here um and I guess, yeah, so if you've got like four or five turtle questions, you can make them obscure, like uh, turtle trivia, and then you can just ask all of us, throw it up in the air, and then I don't know, if you want us to, to, to uh, we could do a volley if you want to get some questions from us, or, or we could just... Oh, I'd like to get some questions. Uh, all right. know, I'm, I'm all always right. learning. I, I don't know everything about turtles. I, I try to learn something every day, so... But uh, I, I could ask you a, a, a simple question. Um uh, what is the largest land of America? Land reptile. The largest land reptile in North America. Is that the Komodo dragon? North America? North America? No. Oh, shoot. Is it the Bolson tortoise? Correct. Correct. The Bolson tortoises get about 40 pounds, and you wouldn't think, you know, uh, obviously you have alligators that are, you know grow huge but they're aquatic so on land uh the the bolson tortoise is the largest land reptile uh uh land, you know in in north america so have you have you seen them in the wild i'd assume you yes yes i've seen uh, several uh as you know the turtle conservancy is preserving land there we have several thousand acres that we've purchased purchased two uh Two properties that aren't connected. Hopefully, one day we can connect them. Uh, but there are estimated on those properties to be about ten percent of the remaining population. Uh, so, that, which is a good number uh, of tortoises. But yeah, I've seen them in the wild. I've seen uh, adults. I've seen not hatchling hatchlings, but you know, like young yearlings, that kind of thing. Yeah, I found interesting in Pritchard's Encyclopedia of Turtles. He he said that, like, he cited specimens that were like 27 inches or something huge like that. Yeah. Or, like, has there been anything even close to that? Or do you see them mostly around like 18 inches or so? Like, I guess I've seen maybe 18 to 20 inch. Yeah. Is probably the biggest I've seen. I, I haven't seen something as big as, uh, 27 inches. Going. That's, that'd be a big tortoise. That's bigger than yeah. a lot of sulcatas. Like, that's, and he said there was shells in restaurants or something. I don't know, but that's so long ago. I don't know if it's the big ones that they don't get that big anymore or what the deal is. But 
there's something yeah maybe it. there's some out there I, I i i'd have to check I, I i haven't really looked at the numbers on that but but possibly there's still some out there especially it's such a remote area that uh it, it doesn't get a lot of traffic there so there's a possibility that animals are still growing pretty old and and, and big there in fact i'm going to new mexico in april for our tc board meeting and and ted turner uh has these giant ranches i mean hundreds of thousands of acres of, of land and he's breeding balsam tourists so we're going there to see his, his breeding facility i saw it many years ago but it's been doing so well uh so we're going back to kind of check up on the animals and see how they're doing and i'll i'll see how big maybe he's got some real big ones there uh but he's having for many years and they're breeding and his plan is to kind of populate his property because they used to be in southern u.s i mean if you look at history the bolson tortoise did occupy southern uh parts of southern united states but they were extirpated uh they believe maybe by the Indians uh, at some point, Adam uh, and, and mm -hmm. uh, or, or whatever, some kind of development, but he's trying to bring them back. That's yeah, really we've, cool. That's... We've spoken about that a bit before on the, one of our episodes in terms of yeah. like what caused that. But... Definitely, like if you get any information, I'd be happy to know if he's, if he's seen really big ones like that or if he has really big ones because okay. – uh, well, yeah, I've just always said, like, that was an old, like, project of mine is, like, just finding all the size records for most of the terrestrial tortoises because a lot of them get, get a lot bigger than most people realize or they have the potential to. So that's something that's always just exactly always been so captivated and by. But Largest land reptile in North America. <laughs> all right. We'll, we'll, we'll hit you with the question, Maurice, if that works. Okay. I, uh... I've got two in my, my mind right now, but I don't know if anyone else wants to start us off here. I think you got it. Why don't you go ahead, Michael, if you got a couple okay. at the ready. So this is one that's kind of interesting. It's current. What is the most recent Mesoclemes species that was described? Oh. This was, <laughs> this was last year. Oh, geez. The, uh, I haven't been keeping up with, with, with stuff like that. Mesoclemmies, yeah, no, I'm, 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 you know, since my my house flooded, I, I haven't been keeping up with stuff. Uh, so who, who, what is it? That's yeah, that's fair. I mean, I don't think most people. So this was the Gerudi toad-headed turtle, Mesoclemmies gerudiensis. I think the description I read through it a few weeks ago, and it's kind of interesting. I think. That there's definitely they they only had eight animals to compare to a pretty limited sample size and and i think that compounds kind of the both the morphological aspect they use and maybe kind of the the potential error there i think that it was an interesting paper obviously but there's a lot to learn but yeah that was the now, most recent one where where is it from uh, south america obviously but uh, what country it's uh brazil so it's in I think Para State, and it's in an area that's only about two thousand square kilometers, so it's okay. a it's a really restricted. I, they also there was also last year at one point too. I think they synonymized um, the Heliostemma with Raniceps, and then proposed the name Wormathai, and that was right around the same time. So I guess that would have worked too. <laughs> but yeah, there was a oh, okay. lot there. So and who described the that new species? It was, uh, I think Fabio Cuna was the lead author on the paper. 
Um, but I think it came out of the Brazil, I think Sequa. I that there's a group out there. I don't know. Gotcha. Yeah, that, that's what. But yeah, that's the most recent one. So that was kind of a interesting. I guess that's very cool. There's a there are actually there are a lot of uh, of uh, new turtles coming out probably soon. Uh, a good friend of mine, as you guys know, Bill McCord. Um, he is working on several uh, right now with a, a Medi Josephuni. Um, there's a bunch of stuff coming out of Australia that's going to be new. You guys will see soon, but uh, pretty exciting stuff. Cool. All right. If you got a question, we can go. Question. Oh my God. I I, I didn't think much about this. Um, uh, do, uh, any of you from New Jersey? I'm in Delaware, so I, I know a good Georgia. amount about Jersey. <laughs> I go. All right. So, how how many species of Chelonians? Oh gosh. In the in New Jersey, anyone? <laughs> uh, it might take me a second. I'm gonna see if I can get this. Yeah, if we thought about it, I think all this this could take a while though. Yeah. Not, Jack, Jack's spinning some wheels. He'll, 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 he'll figure it out. Hold on, I'm just making sure I didn't miss one. You're not including sea turtles, just the terrestrial turtles. No, just, just terrestrial turtles. uh, You know, uh, yeah, aquatic turtles. But if you want to get the sea turtles, there are five. (laughs) Yeah. So uh, I said twelve, including the slider. Uh, Including the. the red ear slider yeah i think i believe it's 13. what i miss 13. diamondback did you get the diamondback yeah i included the diamondback okay you got bog turtles i i must have not included one of the bog turtles or or spotted i I must yeah you got bog spotted wood box mud musk red belly mats uh Soft shiny shell. soft shell. Yeah. Um, oh, the soft shell. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. The soft shell. Southern Jersey uh, has those. Uh, what else? Did we get the red belly? Yeah, I got the red belly in there. I have the red oh, belly. Oh, painted, painted, uh, uh, snapping, and then the slider. So that would be that would be thirteen. Oh yeah. Those yeah. two, the two bone shells on on uh, there, those are both rubber ventris from like lakes oh, and nice. stuff. Near me. I don't cool. know if we count the slider in the native fauna, but sure. Well, it's becoming pretty. I guess. Yeah. <laughs> but, <laughs> that, but 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 yeah, but I've actually found even uh, yellow belly cooters in New Jersey, in the wild, which is kind of crazy. But yeah, they're yeah. they're definitely part of the population here. They're breeding actually down the street from me there's a pond uh that uh, is uh, they breed um red ear sliders every year you'll find little hatchlings around there ah okay. yeah that. all right i guess we can go here anyone got okay. it there's a time limit <laughs> <laughs> i i don't know someone's got to have a question let me check the chat um well i didn't say it. i i've got a co- another question but let's go for it okay so 
this was one. This is an interesting one. So the, there are three subspecies of spider tortoise, and mm -hmm. the one from the north has something that's distinct about the plastron. What it, oh, I maybe should, but what is that? So what is like the distinguishing feature for Brygui? Uh, it has a hinge. Yeah. No, so it it's the opposite. I think that the it's akinetic and Brygui and then Bull. Oh you know, wait, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah, you're right. Uh, I should know this because I've I've kept all three species. Yeah, yeah, but I, I can see like yeah. you knew where it was going. Just got yeah, yeah. Now Bragui for sure, and they're a little bit smaller. Uh, the Bragui a little bit smaller, and yeah, and they're they're fused in the hinge. And where um, Arachnoides, Arachnoides get larger, and they definitely have the hinge uh, on the front. Uh, yep. Yeah, you're right. And then um, Oblonga has. The difference on the plaster and oblonga, they're they have the blotches, right? The the coloration. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So so you can either that can go two ways, either about the hinge or the coloration. Yeah, yeah. So, All right. If you got a question for us, Maurice, we can go a few more. Oh here. man, else uh, uh, ask. Um, okay. What's uh what is the largest freshwater turtle? Ever oh, we debated about this before. <laughs> oh, there's no technically, technically, well, freshwater raffidus would be the largest, technically, okay. but Keetra could also be. It just kind of depends yeah. on the validity of the size. Like, gotcha. the, I'd say, like, it's it's pretty much raffidus and Keetra, like, neck and neck, but uh, it's hard to tell, but I think the raffidus might get might, might get bigger. And, uh, yeah. There are, well, there are, the, like... The, the truth oh. is that the 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 raffidus, uh, we actually have a, a weight on the largest uh, freshwater turtle. When when that male raffidus from Hokinim Lake, I, I'm probably pronouncing yeah. it wrong. In 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 in, uh, in uh, Vietnam, when when it died, or just before it died, it was sick. If you guys recall, it had some fungus, had all kinds of issues. They actually took it out of the war and they weighed it, and it was over 600 pounds. Uh, so there's no one has ever weighed a cheetah that big. Uh, uh, so for now, that is the largest freshwater turtle that's ever been recorded. Was it 600 pounds or kg? Because I think it, uh, that would have been, that's huge. Wait. I think, I think they had a weight once that was like 340 pounds or something for it. I've, but... I've seen 373 for the, the, the weight of that, which would be the largest. That's still bigger than most. Real freshwater turtles ever documented the yeah i have to look at those numbers but yeah i think i think it was at one point uh for sure that when they weighed that one turtle from that lake it was uh it was the largest turtle ever weighed um well actually it a, yeah if it was six kg it'd be like half a ton <laughs> so no like, it wasn't 600 yeah, no, kilograms but, it was like 600 pounds or I don't know. Maybe I'm off by the numbers, but I know it was heavier than anything that's ever been weighed. Uh, so, yeah. Yeah, there yeah, was a couple... There was, like, well, Pritchard's Raffidus book, like, there was a couple caught in the 90s that were that were about that size, too, just in the in some remote swamps, and they tried to keep... Like, these fishermen caught one. They tried to keep it alive for... I think they managed to keep it alive for a week, but it, it just died from... I don't know stress or the overheating or something, and 
they had waited they got a weight on it and the carapace length and it was like 392 pounds like it was just shy of 400 pounds which is just insane like that is insane. that just makes the alligator snapping turtles and like the podoc nemus it makes them look tiny yeah. All right. Let's. Exactly. We got another question coming over here. Someone's got to have something. Uh, sure I got say. one real quick. Oh, right. Jack, if you want to. Okay. So, um, in Ohio, uh, like, what two uh, species of softshell turtles can you find in Ohio? Oh, okay. Uh, I would assume the smooth and the spiny. Correct. There you go. There you go. Cool. Spoon right. so, so have you caught them and are you you're from ohio i guess yeah, yeah. so i've Where, seen what, a, oh my bad go ahead no no go ahead you've seen spiny but you, have you found the smooth soft shell uh no limited to like uh parts of like southern ohio so like uh, the skiodo river i believe but i've seen a uh, spiny turtles a fair bit wow oh that's cool but he's in Orlando right now, so. Nice. That's that's where I want to be right now. That's in fact, you asked me like what if I could pick one place to go look for tur aquatic turtles, it'd be the springs in Florida, man. That just because a, a lot of reasons, a, a variety of species, uh, and then the access, it's cheap. I mean, you know, to go to Madagascar or go to these exotic places, it's expensive, but you can get a flight from New York to, to, to Florida for 200 bucks and a hotel in those areas, like 75 to a hundred dollars. And you're in the water the next day catching turtles. So the Florida Springs, probably my favorite uh, place to be. In fact, I had my 50th birthday at the Itchitutney uh, uh, Springs. Uh, I spent my 50th birthday during the height of COVID uh, in, in those springs. I loved it. Right. Yeah, they're, they're, I'm in the same boat. That's probably my favorite spots I've ever been. They're just insane. Exactly. Yeah, Peter Proschak said something to that effect too at the TTPG meeting that those were just like when you when you look at all this traveling he's done it that was still some one of the coolest places by far but all right i guess we if we got one more question on each side we could do we could do that i think if we want to just finish it off maurice sure. if you got what something else <laughs> okay Start oh man um <laughs> i'm not sure uh someone else kick it off all right, Ken, Jack. I was gonna say, unless Ken, unless you got one. Uh, yeah, sure. I mean, since we <laughs> since we talked about the largest uh, soft shell, largest freshwater turtle, what about you know what's the smallest tortoise species? Oh, Ken. Oh man, the tortoise. <laughs> I I would say. Okay, go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead, Mike. Go ahead. Well, I okay. I I think. I would say this, the smallest turtle species is now different than the smallest tortoise. So I guess, I guess a, go with Ken's question, but if you, I guess extra points, if you, <laughs> the smallest turtle species. Smallest tortoise species is, would that be the Egyptian tortoise maybe? Uh, possibly. It, yeah, uh, I don't know. Egyptian tortoise. Michael, what do you think? It's it, it, 
on when it comes to record this the homopus or or the chersovia yeah. now yeah. but chersovia yeah the smallest turtle is now technically based on that the most recent checklist the cora mud turtle which was also recently described and then votes the Puerto Vallarta mud turtle they're like 4.3 inches whereas or they're like 4.2 inches max whereas the Chersovius are 4.3 4.4 so it's like <laughs> well look I, I keep Pelusius nanus and the male nanus are minuscule I mean, I have adults that are several years old and they're tiny. So they, they would rival some of those musk turtles for sure in body mass. You know, maybe even, you know, smaller, I'd, I'd argue. There's definitely, it seems like there's, there's a minimum size that turtles can be. Like there isn't really anything that like two inches is like just about, it's really getting there is like the maximum size that any mature adult, the minimum size any mature adult turtle is in the world. Gotcha. All right, Maurice, if you got one more question or one more question. Oh jeez. <laughs> uh I don't yeah. hmm. one more turtle question. Something uh, obscure. Something obscure. Okay. <laughs> and this podcast off on a high note. A high note, okay. yeah. Don't be afraid to ask something really hard too, because I, 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 I don't know why I'm I'm a, I'm a blank right now. I, uh, uh, what about uh, uh, can can you guys name a monotypic genus from um, from southern India, a terrestrial semi-aquatic turtle from? Uh, from southern India that uh, that's monotypic? Yeah, well, oh, I can think of a monotypic genus, but I guess sem- uh, mostly terrestrial, but I might be thinking on the same line as you right now. I'm just trying okay. to Okay. Uh, I was thinking Vigia Kelly's, but... Yeah, there you yeah. go. Oh, yeah. That's a cure. Vijayja Kelly's uh, Sylvatica, I, uh, I believe. Um, Peter Proshog, you mentioned Peter. He he discovered that animal or named that animal. Yeah, those are cool ones. That's uh, yeah. the the biologist. It's named after. She was a. I think she's from India, but she was a female biologist in India, and I guess super like she would camp out in the caves there for months on end. Exactly. Yeah, that was a. Uh, that's a cool story. Well, I mean, I think we're we're good to go in terms of everything on here. But uh, I mean, thank you so much for coming on and, and talking with us. I mean, so the stories that you have are just unparalleled. It's it's really yeah, that was awesome. We didn't even hit half the stuff we wanted. <laughs> Chaco tortoises yeah. and all, but we'll we'll get there. Maybe we'll we'll yeah. have another something. So yeah, but, yeah, but get, so get check out our YouTube video, Turtle Conservancy. Uh, there's a bunch of videos. The, the Argentina trips on there. I believe the Galapagos. There's a few good videos out there. South Africa. Um, yeah, definitely watch those. And if I could give all you guys advice, get out in nature. Make sure you're exploring, whether it's your backyard or going to exotic place. Uh, just get out there. You know, it's important. All right. Thanks so much for coming yeah, thanks on. Thanks for coming on. That's awesome. Thanks for coming on.
No problem. Hope to see some of you guys soon in the field. Yeah. If, yeah. Uh, All right. Take it if easy. You have a, 